Welcome to Disruptive Narratives. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Lewis. In these episodes, we will be highlighting people who are impacted by histories and systemic processes of neglect and disinvestment, but do not often have a seat at the table and may not feel seen. This is a space for people radically reimagining a path forward, but not necessarily a space for those who are unpersuaded by the need for a better world where Black futures matter. We are focused on sharing perspectives that are often unshared or unheard because they challenge what we think we know. In this program, guests are the experts of their own reality. Macaulay, artist, organizer, organizer, artist. Macaulay states that he has been called these things interchangeably throughout his life. From South Central LA to Minneapolis, Macaulay was raised by a mother who was an artist, and as such, it was foundational to his way of being in the world. Shaka has also experienced all the perils of being a Black man in urban America. When Macaulay came to Minneapolis, he never expected to stay, but later found his work as an artist, which originated with graffiti art in South Central, would flourish and grow with mentorship and support in the Twin Cities. Macaulay, also known as I Self Divine, works at Hope Community, Inc., building community power and supporting art as a vessel for change. Something that I would love for you to dive deeply into is around your early career and the strategy of pulling people together to meet and gather. What was the goal? What was the intention for you as an artist, organizer, or organizer, artist to do that work? And was it through that early strategy that people started to try to single you out, separate yourself from your own people? Or was there another trajectory that influenced that? So let's, I'm just writing down separate because it's two different kinds of separations. Okay. I think the difference between organizers that came up in my era versus newer ones is that we have political studies and we have politicals. We study different movements. And so a lot of things in the movement building informed what it was that I did. So one of the things that always stuck in my mind is what the Panthers were able to do without communication and coordination. The lack of communication and coordination put it to where, you know, informants were able to come in and, you know, do damage. But I think, I remember one time there was a institutional leader that came in and said, we can't do this for the Phillips community because, you know, Sea of Riverside needs X, Y, and Z. So my mom was like, okay, if we get Phillips and Sea of Riverside together and bring that same person, what's the story? I'm pretty sure it'll be another neighborhood. Mm. So always to ensure that we wouldn't cancel each other out, I always communicate and coordinate. Uh, the very first time that I recognized I was an organizer, so I didn't use that word. Okay. And it wasn't until I was looking at organizer and, and, and reached back in my life and was like, you know, you've been there always, but the intentionality maybe wasn't connected. So at 14, I had organized 14 other graffiti artists in L.A., came up with the name and all of that. So I knew I was an organizer. So I was always convening and bringing people together based on the way in which I was raised. I was raised also in a, a school in Echo Park called De Colores by community organizers who organized the Chavez Ravine. The Chavez Ravine was a, a neighborhood that they had to tear down 
um, mainly Mexican community to build the Dodger Stadium. So again, when I look at like where where I was, how I was raised, it's no surprise that I'm where I'm at. So that level of convening and connecting was a part of the work. So fast forward in Minneapolis, maybe 93, I was, because I know how to spot artists just in the same way I know how to spot police, undercover police. I know how to spot people. And so I was able to identify tons of folks who were in isolation. Um, and then we had a gathering at uh, Dinky Town at Rocky Rococo's. It's no longer. And we rounded up all of the graffiti artists of the time. And we created uh, opportunity. Essentially, everybody put in maybe $5, $10. And we started at Cedar under those tunnels that is now the Greenway. And we started the path that eventually allowed it to be the Greenway. But it started off on... If we all put $10 in a bucket, by the time we get to Uptown, we'll all do a walk and see who had the best pieces and whoever will get the money. But the money, we forgot about the money, and I don't even know what happened to the money. <laughs> and then that began the painting. So I'm giving examples of convening and organizing spaces. So I've been doing that. So that's that. So then there's why you get into the work, what orig originally brings you to the work, and then there's different aspects that you see that come with the work that you didn't sign up for. Mm. So I remember the first time I did a mural, I signed up for the mural. Well, let me, the first large-scale mural project that I did in 99, um, I came to paint. Uh, what I found out is I was brought in from parents to advocate their child not um, getting expelled, all of these different things I didn't sign up for. You know, I'm getting into it with the union because the liaison I connected with didn't check in with them around the paint. You know, so again, stuff you didn't sign up for. Um, as it relates to community organizing, a lot of times you're challenging people to be their best selves, and there's multitudes of reasons as to how and why they will not be or choose not to. And so in theory, you thought, by helping people, you would get applause. But depending on what you're challenging, people always tell people, I don't tell you what you want to hear, I tell you what you need to hear. That's the kind of mentor I'm looking for. So part of what happens is that as it relates to trauma and the effects of trauma, that's not what I signed up for. I had no idea that if I'm in a leadership role, it will push up against other people's narratives of what they experience. And so sometimes as it relates to trauma, Trauma is the language of no language that transports you back to the scenario where you can't differentiate the time. And so they're not looking at Shaka. They're looking at whoever that male was who represented power or lack thereof. I didn't know that and I didn't come for that. So as a result, so it's like sometimes in the jungle or in the forest or in the wilderness, there may, an, may be an animal that legitimately needs help, but where they're at, you will also get attacked. I didn't sign up for that part. So I told the ancestors, yo, uh, I need a more of adjustment. I ain't working with that aspect of trauma no more. I want to address and engage with folks that are at a different point. You know, there's one thing when you know the information that's halfway, then there's what do you do with what you know? Then there's another point in time where you have no reference of actually what's occurring. And so I know how to 
tap out of those situations. Um, being involved in those situations has taken a lot from me because it's it has been difficult to. So even though you know it's not personal, it still hurts. Mm. And that cumulative piece has put me in situations where it has bumped me up against my own self-care because I always say in organ organizing that which brings you to the work has the ability to destroy you. Mm. So when there were organizers on the front line dealing with racial justice issues, the conversation was, is where are you and how are you in related to in relation to what actually brought you to the work and are you being activated and or triggered on the front line, which then crossed over to what became healing justice, which is inside the work. How are we taking care of those based on what brought us to the work? So those are the reasons why I want to convene less and less, as well as we all are aware of a group of people who make it their job to go to other people's events to critique events, never yeah, to throw events right. of their own. That's right. So there's a safety in always coming. I can come to your house and tell you what the ingredients, you know what, you didn't put, but you made it though. <laughs> what have I made? Even if it was a faulty dish, it was like, ooh. Hey, you put it together, but like, yo, like, hey, when you did that, did the um paprika joint, like, extra paprika out, like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so these are different things, like, ah, okay, okay, huh? They're trying to destroy the kid. Like, I'm going to destroy myself. Not, not y'all not finna do it. Mm. And so I guess what it is is a, the strategic pieces. I can see way ahead. That was that part. But it's really informed by trauma. And then on top of it, even the stuff like you probably get more deep into the struggle to where like, oh, I didn't know. But what I was trying to tell you is struggle recognize a struggle. I don't know the details, but I know what it looked like. And you're still here and you're functioning. So, OK, we here. That I right, bet. So if it's like, man, you want to do this? Nope. <laughs> Dr. Lewis, because I got to put doctor in there. Dr. Lewis this is in my phone. Dr. Lewis said, ah, OK. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I'm still kind of reluctant, but I'm going to chop it up with her real quick and just, okay, it's official. Woo, woo, woo. Say less. I'm there. That's why I'm here now. Because at first I was like, huh, like, I don't know, man. This is Disruptive Narratives. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Lewis. Disruptive Narratives is a co-production of Camo J and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Knowing what you have experienced, and many of us deeply committed to the work have experienced the very same things, what advice do you give to folks that you mentor um, about this, the politics of convening collaboration um, and the types of community transformation that we're all deeply committed to, knowing this is a reality? especially when you're out here doing great things, when you're out here moving things that might disrupt someone else's expectations of what should be moved and how? What I would say is that um, we as humans make things more difficult than they need to be for a myriad of reasons. I, I always say that there is the struggle and then there's your struggle. 
you know, part of what I don't like in the work is when I'm put in position to manage someone else's struggle. It's like as if I did a guerrilla play and y'all never signed off to be on it. But you're in it, dealing with my stuff. So my biggest issue is like if if I'm bumped up against something in my own trajectory, I have to be like, you know, I'll pardon self. I'm kind of out of pocket real quick. Let me, I need to tap in. I need to circle back. You know, and so if you're committed to your own personal work, you have very little patience for other people who are playing around. Um, and, and so I pick and choose. I also, uh, I know my medicine is a particular taste. And so I don't insert myself. I have to be invited. So even during the pandemic, there was a group of youth that was like, oh, gee, uh, us young folk, we tear stuff up and, and we need a little bit of guidance. Say less. I've been invited. So now I can really because, again, part of our generation is inserting ourselves. You know, sometimes I love my mom, but it's like, yo, I didn't really ask for that. I didn't ask for the help. I kind of got this. And so part of it is, you know, knowing when to be invited into something. Um, and then to be able to give information. There's also a situation where, like, uh, there may be somebody that I have issues with, but you might not have issues with. Mm -hmm. So how do I tell you my experience? So I always tell people to make judgment and suspend judgment. Mm -hmm. So I make judgment. I think this person is this way. And then I sit in front of them, and I give them a chisel, and I allow them to define who... And if it is who I thought it was, it's like, okay, it's confirmation. If it's not, then I figure out where my shortcoming did I uh, second guess my assessment. Uh, also, uh, you have to follow your intuition. You know, there's a second brain, you know, underneath your rib cage. Um, your heart has a beat, your mind doesn't. So these are things that I think about. So for me, you know, growing up in the streets, it's been my intuition. Mm, it smells funny. It's a setup. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's time to bounce. Mm -hmm. Raise up. Mm -hmm. Don't ask no questions. Get out. Mm -hmm. And so I give myself, it's funny, there's a, a few organizers that I know that got street credentials to where, you know, when I check in with them, I'm like, yo, you're not using this and this? Like, I learned how to audit my tools that I learned in survival and learn which ones to be like, okay, leave this one here. I can take this anywhere and everywhere. So to be able to spot people, read people, I give myself permission. Um, and, and intuition, like, yo, I don't like this person. I have issues with this person. Well, let me, might even scale back a little bit. Very early, I learned not to play po po uh, personality politics. I only mm -hmm. focus on the work. And yeah, so there have right. been points in times where people have uh, maybe not valued what I bring to the table on trip. I just get back to the work more times than not. When I'm faced with that person again, the dynamics are way different and they don't really have a choice now because I've come in with their supervisor who's recommending me. Mm -hmm. And now there's a tax associated for sleeping. Um, and that's part of the long game. So it's like you don't like something happens, you don't like make a move because it's like if you have to if you're always reacting there's a piece of like controlling the terms of debate if you're always reacting to something you're always behind something you know uh, in my political work I've never been caught slipping because I bring the elements of the street into the work 
Um, I always tell people, uh, KYP, know your personnel. Sometimes I say, do you know who's in front of you? I remember one time I had this dude, he was hella talkative. And I was like, man, you know, I'm going to play a game. I have time today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to see how long it takes for him to ask me questions. And this went on for like some years. And one day I was just kind of bothered, man. And I was just like, yo, fam, why do you talk so much? I said, do you even know who I am? Do you know who's in front of you? I said, I've been watching you for years to see. Now, it was interesting for me. Man, was my guy shook? Very much so. Like, damn. But he did tell me why he talked so much, but I got it. So I'm never in an environment where I don't know who's in front of me. Mm-hmm. Because that's part of the safety piece. So I'm going to be asking questions. And I felt it was dangerous on his part that he didn't. Now, obviously, it is enough where you know I'm safe. You ain't going to be. But how can you have someone in your inner area to where you're not asking them the same questions? What do you think? What is on your? And that's really the magic that I do. It looks like magic, but I really understand who's in front of me. I know how to push. I know how to pull. I know how to challenge. I know how to agitate. So as it relates to mentor, whatever I'm very selective with who I choose to mentor because whatever they say to do on the paper, you always give way more than that. Different set of life skills. Those who are under my mentorship, they either come in at the level they were at or they elevate, but they never go down. Elevate could be, I mean, I still get texts from folks like, yo, um, the different things that you told me, you know, uh, I wasn't able to see at this point in time, but now I'm able to, you know, because if I come from the jungle, I'm going to give you advice that no one ever going to give you. Here's where you're slipping. Nine times out of 10 is in everyone's self-interest to not tell you this. And that's why I tell, like when you start to change and switch things, pay attention to the people that are tripping because those are the people that were getting something as a result of you not being powerful. So all of my exchanges are only around power, around sharpening and ensuring Mm. you're the best. And Mm. with an understanding that if I do my job right, you're going to come for me first. And so, for example, even when the staff at Hope came, like, yo, we unionizing. I had different viewpoints on what that looked like. But the biggest mistake is for when the leaders you rock with come to challenge you and you shut them down. So then it means everything was theoretical. And those are things that I learned only from what not to do. So I mentor based on what was never done for me. You know, I ain't never was fathered. So huh, let's try just the opposite and see where that gets us. Or no one mentor, let's just try the opposite, see where it gets us. So it was a good view. It's not, you know, like if you have a bowl, sometimes to flip it and make it a dome is, you know, that's that's a good starting point. But, you know, it's still a bowl. Like we might need to build on that design. So this is Disruptive Narratives. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Lewis. Disruptive Narratives is a co-production of Camo J and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. I'm curious, as you describe the ways in which your early career, whether it's in organizing your strategy and philosophy, both where you're reaching back to your roots, but then also deciding to give the thing that you didn't have in strategy or approach, how much of that is connected to 
choosing the name I self divine? Probably none of it. Okay. And I may be not hearing the question right. I think it really starts off with my birth name. Okay. Shaka Mukali. Um, and my father wasn't really around, you know, and I understand his story. And so he's forgiven for that, but the impacts are still the same. But the benefit that he did was give me this name. Okay. Um, and so he was from Louisiana and probably Haitian and a myriad of other things. But the name before, like if it wasn't Shaka, it was uh, Toussaint Le Overture. So mm-hmm. I, I see a theme. So you're talking about rebel. You're talking about tearing up something. So I think that, so all of my children have African names as a result of that, because from the era I came from, it, so you're involved in politics if you are poor, if you are black, whether you choose to or not. But with a name like that, it's like extra gunpowder mm-hmm. when they like the. So as you can imagine, with a name like Shaka, you know, it was a lot of uh, weight to carry. You know, uh, when I was in county homeschool, um, there was a woman who, her name was, I think, Millie Cook, wrote this letter in 88. It was after I was leaving. And she wrote about how in the beginning uh, that I didn't want to use my name because it got to be a point in time where I felt like I didn't deserve it. And so I took another name, but the name was influenced by, you know, uh, Chuck D. So I just used the word Chuck or Charles as a. But really, that was a lot of self-oppression, you know, internalized oppression. Growing up in California with a vegan and vegetarian, with a black single mother that everyone thinks is lesbian, it was rough. You know, co-op. You know what I mean? My mom telling kids you're from Africa. Like, that's mm-hmm. the... We was different. You know what I mean? I feel like I was a Kendrick before Kendrick, like a hood with all kind of elements of one minute I'm in Hollywood, next minute I'm with some hippies, next minute I'm in a crack house, you know? And so that was more of the trajectory. And so with that name, it it it, it made it, it, it told him I was coming mm-hmm. and then, okay, to bury him extra. So the, the name myself really actually came about on the trip to Minneapolis. And really what it had to deal with was, I was a graffiti artist and my mom knew my name and I was tearing up her bank and tearing up everything. And so I said to myself, well, you know, I told my mom that I I stopped doing it or I wasn't gonna do it. But I was like, man, I gotta, I'm just gonna switch up the name. And so really what it started off was is uh, oneself or self one. Okay. And it initially started because, you know, coming from the mud and, you know, dealing with the traumas, you know, there was an issue of uh, self-worth and value. And so I was like, self one, one must take care of oneself first. You know? So that it really started off as a graffiti name. Okay. And so in 91, you know, up and down Lake Street and, you know, start to tag and just, so that was the the, the name. And it wasn't until... I moved out to Atlanta. So, you know, went to jail, got out of jail, enrolled in the MCAD first time, eh, dropped out, decided again, jumped into MCAD, transferred from MCAD to Atlanta College of Art. 
in 94. And it was in a rhyme. I was just saying something like, I self-divine my mental shine, some something. I was like, huh, I self-divine. So part of what happened is sometimes when you come from nothing and then when you get something, then you become self-centered. So I felt like self-one, even though it was about loving oneself, it got to the point where it became focused to where you became selfish. Okay. So I was like, yo, I got to move out of that. So what? So I self-divine really is a proclamation for anyone. Every, everyone is I self-divine. It's what everyone should actually say. I am divine and worthy of praise. And so that's the, the origin of the name, but it started in 96. Was it 96? 90, in between the dates are, are blurry, but anywhere between 94 and 96. So that's kind of like the origin of the name that I think was more influenced by my my government name. And so there are certain folks that I could tell they know me from different eras because some people would be like, well, he became Muslim and he changed his name to Shaka. No, my name always meant Shaka. Mm. I got social security, birth, birth <laughs> certificates, and it's Shaka Mkali Jenkins Hughes. That's the name that's on my birth certificate. But Hughes is my father's last name and he wasn't around, so he don't get that respect. Jenkins is the last name that my mother was kind of in, you know, it's the name of my mom's sibling's father. Mm. So when my mom decided to change her name back back from uh, Jenkins to Evans, because my mom's father's from the Bahamas and Evans was his last name, she was like, you want to change your name? And I was like, they just make it Shakam Kali. So I cut off the Jenkins and the Hughes. Okay. So Shakam Kali was my middle name. Okay. There's so much that you said um, that just resonates with how I feel like I have to move, but it can feel lonely. Scared, but not afraid. Like, I'm I'm scared, but I'm not afraid. Like, right. I'm nervous, but this thing from the dictate high. Mm-hmm. No. Well, <laughs> this path is lonely, though, because it is a, it's the self-path. What do they say about the road to righteousness or something to that effect? It's, mm. it's, 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 but pay with your intentions. It's, but it's mad lonely, though. Yes, yes. Because you have to go to, like, dark places. Mm-hmm. You know, I come, out, I come from the dark areas of shadows. You know, dark business. Mm. Um, and when you, you're doing the dark arts, you know, dark lower vibrations, you know, uh, well, right. I feel like even when you, you mentioned the phrase lower vibration, sometimes when you show up in your purpose with clear and direct um, understanding of what's needed, there are the folks around us with lower vibrations mm-hmm. who either aren't there yet, um, who are actually there to sabotage and or make you a part of the problem instead of the solution. Mm-hmm. And how you navigate that. It's ancestors. Um, it's key. Even in terms of the uprising, um, usually the ancestors speak very quietly. And they said, uh, stay here. Mm-hmm. Stay on the north side. Um, mm-hmm. You've done your work on the south side. Uh, mm-hmm. There's certain people that need to see you in, in the thick of things for when you circle back. To hear the second part of our conversation, visit camojfm.com.
Disruptive Narratives is a production of Camo J Radio and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. Made with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, hosted by Dr. Brittany Lewis, produced by Miranda Wilson, edited by Abdi Muhammad, music by Jerome Rankin.